reading of Scripture. The sermon text today is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin." Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of God and all God's people said. You may be seated. So we're dropping down into the middle of Paul's train of thought here in his letter. So we need to get our bearings just a little bit, get some context under our belt so we can understand this. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has been painting an idyllic picture of the people of God. Having been justified by faith, they are now standing in grace and rejoicing in glory. They are a new creation with a new representative head. Having formerly belonged to Adam, the author of sin and death, they now belong to Christ, the author of salvation and life. Romans 5, which immediately precedes our text today, culminates in an overwhelming crescendo of grace. In chapter 5, Paul tells the history of creation from the perspective of its eschatological end. One man's trespass led to condemnation for all. God gave the law, but the powers of sin and death turned this good gift uh, away to their own ends. And then Paul writes in verse 20 of chapter 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, one man's act of righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, leads to justification and life for all. In sum, Paul tells the story of a relentless, resourceful God who is determined to speak the last word. That last word is as it says in verse 21 of chapter 5, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. But, without further argument beyond chapter 5, doesn't this picture seem a bit unbalanced to you? 
In his concentration on the secure status of the people of God, Paul has said very little or nothing about Christian life or growth, maturation or discipleship. He seems to have jumped straight from our justification to our glorification without intervening stage of sanctification. By this omission so far, he has exposed himself to misrepresentation by his critics. We know from chapter 3 of Romans that they have already slanderously misquoted him as saying, let us do evil that good may result. He mentions this in chapter 3 already. At that point, he dismissed their charge, but he did not answer it. Now, in chapter 6, however, as they rally their attack yet again, he refutes this slander. This is the topic of Romans 6. Paul preached a gospel of grace so powerful that some of his hearers thought that it merited even more sin so that this wondrous grace that he preached could manifest itself in more and more measure. The pressures for relevant preaching in our day, can tempt us away from the fullness of this kind of gospel proclamation. A sermon on, say, four biblical rules for raising children, for example, will likely not inspire any one of us to ask if we should flout those rules so that God's grace might increase in our child-rearing. A call to perform simple strategies to save the earth's natural resources will not likely invite questions about exploiting those resources so that God's redeeming power might be more visible in the world. You see, the absurdity of these questions marks the difference between a weak and truncated gospel proclamation and Paul's version of the gospel. So, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The details of this question matter. Not just any question about the power of grace will do. It's this question that matters. No one would ask the question of verse 1 after hearing a gospel of breezy acceptance and easy platitudes. This question doesn't even arise from that context. Only the unadulterated message of sola gratia, salvation by grace alone, that provokes such a question, do we have this problem? So, The faithful preacher finds himself in the same position as the Apostle Paul. One of the dangers of preaching salvation by grace alone is that it can be interpreted as license to do whatever one wishes. This has been a perennial problem in the history of the church. It is clear from our text that Paul himself was well aware of this tendency. Because of this type of misrepresentation, Paul was always on guard when he made a strong statement about grace. He knew that a pernicious kind of logic could be applied to this bold statement. Well, if sin brings more grace, hey, let's dial up the sin to get more grace. Woohoo! Right? Seems to make sense. He also knew that such thinking was not only logical to some minds, it was also natural because, of course, sin is enjoyable for a short time as Hebrews 11 says. Even more, he knew that according to this faulty logic, sinning could even be twisted into a religious duty. You must sin so that grace may abound. 
because it provides an opportunity for God to give His grace and love and thus glorify Himself through the sin. The sin becomes the instrument of God's grace. Who can argue with that? Uh, Paul. (laughs) So uh, the church in Corinth, of course, had this problem. Presiding minister Paul had to deal with some thorny issues that threatened the integrity of the church at Corinth. One serious situation involved an incestuous couple that needed to be excommunicated from the church. But there were some in the church who saw nothing wrong with the incest. And, in fact, they thought it was an excellent display and application of Christian liberty, Christian freedom. You see, they had this faulty logic about the message of grace alone. So you see the great danger in this kind of twisted logic regarding grace and how it threatens the integrity of the gospel message and its implications in the life of the church. We can find a historical example of this in the famous Russian Orthodox monk Rasputin, who taught that salvation came through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. He argued that because those who sin more require more forgiveness, those who sin with abandon will, as they repent, experience greater joy. Therefore, it is the believer's duty to sin. That's his Christian duty. To sin so that grace may abound. So, when Paul said, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, he could sense already the inevitable question coming. And so he went ahead and articulated it himself at the beginning of chapter 6. He didn't wait for someone to bring it up. He went ahead and said it. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? His answer was quick and unambiguous, straight to the point. By no means. Other translations. May it never be. Of course not. God forbid it. No, no. What a ghastly thought. Paul has no use for even the slightest intimation that grace encourages sin in the believer. In fact, he finishes verse 2 with a question to the contrary. Here's how he responds. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The remainder of chapter 6 goes on to substantiate this position and clear up any confusion that may remain. Verses 3 through 14 of our text answers the question. How do those of us who are under grace live without being characterized by sin? The question arises logically from Paul's argument. And so Paul answers it logically in three parts in this text. First, he says, by understanding the nature of our identification with Christ. That's the first, that's the starting place. That's how we answer this. By understanding the nature of our identification with Christ. Our union with Christ. And second, we do this by accepting our identification with Christ as something that is true and that we can stand on. And third, by yielding to Christ with whom we are so wonderfully identified. So for Paul, what a believer knows and understands about their own faith is of critical importance. Paul was convinced that Christian living depends on Christian learning. That duty follows doctrine. And I want to repeat that. Paul was convinced that Christian living 
depends on Christian learning. That duty follows doctrine. So it is no surprise that he attempts to increase our knowledge of the matter so that we might understand the issue aright. The key word in verse 3 through 10, verses 3 through 10 is no, which occurs three times in those few verses. Do you not know, he says in verse 3? We know, verse 6, again, we know, verse 9, he's interested in teaching us something. We have to learn this principle so that we can avoid error and live rightly. Above all, Paul wants us to know, to understand the nature of our union with Christ. One of the most precious and powerful doctrines of our faith, but unfortunately one that has been consistently de-emphasized in our evangelical context. So to help us know, Paul employs the powerful image of baptism. For Paul, baptism signifies wondrous realities, including our identification with Christ. Listen again to verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life? Here, Paul reminds Christians in Rome of their baptism. He holds them by their baptism, so to speak. Baptism unites Christians to Christ so completely that we truly share in His death and resurrection. Our old self is crucified with Christ on the cross, and that death breaks the power of sin over us. We die with Christ, we are buried with Christ, And Paul writes, we will surely rise with Christ to walk in resurrection life. This is powerful. Paul understands baptism as a type of exodus. As Israel once labored under Pharaoh, so humanity labored in bondage to sin. Paul makes those parallels very readily. As Pharaoh's power was broken... Once when Israel passed through the the waters of the Red Sea, so sin's power over us was broken when we passed through the waters of baptism. Israel came through the water into the wilderness, a place where Pharaoh no longer held power over them and where God traveled with them, but still yet not in the promised land. Even so, we move through the waters of baptism into a place where sin no longer has dominion where God is with us and where the ultimate fullness of resurrection life is still yet to come, though already available to us in great measure. Paul makes clear that baptism is not only an event between the individual and God, but also a union with Christ that marks membership in the body of Christ and connects the one baptized with all the faithful in every time and place. This is a majestic doctrine. We have to expand the scope of our understanding of this. And this is exactly what Paul's trying to to do with his readers in Rome. So, baptism is not merely a family celebration, like a birthday party. It is covenant ceremony of incorporation into the body, the life of the body of Christ. And thus, 
into a set of commitments that may ultimately call even family ties into question, as Jesus himself dealt with. Baptism is not a magic spell that protects a person from peril in this world and the next. On the contrary, in binding us to Christ, our baptism places us on the way to the cross. Baptism is not a celebration of the waters of life, at least not in any some simple sense. Baptism is a drowning, an act that renders us dead to sin, but alive to Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. Dead to sin and alive to God. The baptized one cannot remain in sin without betraying who he or she has become. You have become a new creature. And it is because of your baptism that you can no longer be characterized by sin. So, baptism grounds Paul's answer to the question in verse 1. It is not the acts of sin that, that the acts of sin have become impossible for baptized Christians. Our own lives make that clear enough. Even after the Exodus, the children of Israel can no long, uh, can no long, uh, I'm sorry, the children of Israel can long still for the flesh pots of Egypt, even though they've been rescued from Egypt. Nevertheless, something has happened to them. A page has turned. Not only in individual lives, but also in the eschatological history of the world, a new age has dawned. And so by the grace of God, there is no going back. A new age has dawned and we now walk in its light. Through our baptism, we live according to the ethics of the new age of Christ's reign while we remain grounded in the present age. It's the already but not yet, the inaugurated eschatology that we live in today. Through us, the church, the future breaks into the present. What a marvelous reality that we stand on. And we experience even today in worship. The overall emphasis of these verses is upon our profound identity with Christ through our baptism. Baptism bears with it the idea of identification, especially when it's linked to a person's name. We are baptized under the triune name of God. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that the Israelites were baptized into Moses. You see the name. They were baptized into Moses. Referring not to a water baptism ritual, but to the fact that they became united with him as never before as they recognized his leadership and their, and, and their dependence upon him. So it is with Christ. When we were baptized into him, we achieved a profound identification. Our text further emphasizes this identity in verse 5 of chapter 6, which uses a botanical term in saying that we have become united with him. The word there, united, Symphytoi literally means grown together. It pictures a branch bound, uh, a, a branch grown out of another that's bound together. They are grafted together. There's that engrafting concept. That describes our relationship to Christ in our, baptize, uh, in our baptism. We have been grafted into Him. We are now part of Him. 
His vitality is our vitality. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. The scripture boldly affirms this in a number of places. Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. You see the image. So close is our identification with Christ that we are, so to speak, robed with Him. We wear Him. There could not be a more profound identity or union than this. This is our position before God. We do not have to be conscious of it any more than of our conscious participation in Adam's sin. It is simply a fact. We are identified with Christ in our baptism, period. His death is our death and His redemption is our redemption. What a wonderful and mysterious reality. The specific emphasis of verses 3 through 5 is that we are so profoundly identified with Christ's death and resurrection that we actually did die with Him and truly were raised with Him. This is not just simply a metaphor. So that we now share in His resurrection life. Not metaphorically, but actually. Whereas before, we had only a solidarity with Adam's sin. Now that has been broken And we have a solidarity with Christ, the second last Adam, in His death and resurrection. We need to know this, Paul says. And we need to stand on this if we are going to experience a life characterized by victory over sin. This is the bedrock. Self-help psychobabble is not going to get you over your sin. This is the foundation. This is our doctrine. And so, what this means practically in our life is this, verses 6 through 10. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So Paul here emphasizes that when Christ died, he died once for all. This is a, this is a technical term with a very precise meaning as it's used by Paul. And it's used repeatedly in the letter to the Hebrews also to emphasize the finality of Christ's work. Once for all, done. The great high priest has entered into the Holy of Holies once for all. Paul made this emphasis because the believer must have full confidence that the captain of his soul will never again come under the power of sin and death. Earlier, we emphasized that in dealing with the problem of those who turn grace into license, Paul would insist that the place to begin is our knowledge We must know two things. First, we must know something of our profound identity or solidarity with Christ in our baptism, our mystical union, as it is sometimes referred to. Though we cannot fully understand it, we actually did die with Him and we were resurrected with Him in the historical events themselves. Secondly, this shared death and resurrection means that the dominance of sin has been broken And we are free to live righteously before Him. 
Paul says we have to know those two things. Essential. And it's at this critical juncture of knowledge that I fear many of us may be subject to a lack of careful consideration and appropriation. Do we truly understand our position as united to Christ in this way? And does this profound reality come to bear on our daily living? How we see ourselves? Is it the basis of our identity in the world? Does it define us in who we are as as the people of God? Thus far in Romans 6, Paul has debunked the view that we should continue to be characterized by sin because we are under grace. Actually, it's the contrary that's true. According to Paul, it is impossible to continue living unchanged when you are so identified with Christ in baptism. When we have experienced solidarity with Christ in this way, our whole being is affected, just as it was by our solidarity with Adam. The effects of the curse of sin were on us. That has been broken. And now the effects of Christ's death and resurrection are on us. So how does all this work itself out in Christian living? Now we come to the practical application, which is often what Paul will do. Explore some doctrinal truths that are foundational and then draw application from them. It's exactly what he's doing here. So how do we, uh, we come to the practical application of everything we've said so far, everything Paul and seen that Paul has said so far. And really this practical application has to do with a second key word of this text. And that word is consider in the ESV. Uh, other uh, translations have different words there. So, Paul says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We can't gloss over the injunction here. The King James Version renders the term consider as reckon. And I actually prefer this rendering because I think it's, it's more jolting. It makes us pause for a second. It's not a word we use quite as often. And it carries more of the connotation of the original term. Reckon yourselves dead to sin is what Paul is telling us. Reckon. It's one of the most important words in Romans. Paul uses this term 19 times in the letter. And if one does not know what it means in Paul's usage, he or she will not be able to understand the theology of this book. It's that important. And that would be a great tragedy. It's a term taken from the world of commerce. Lagizomai. It means to impute to one's account. You can imagine someone keeping a, a register, right, of, of, of monetary value. To reckon or impute to one's account. In other words, to, de- to determine accurately by mathematical process. Think about that. Reckon, to determine accurately by mathematical process. To calculate, in other words. And so by metaphorical extension, it means to give careful thought to, to think about, to consider, ponder, let one's mind dwell upon. That's what Paul means here by reckon. You get the idea. Paul says that we are to reckon our position in Christ. Not just agree that that's the case. Right? You see the difference? We are, we are united with Christ. Yeah, I agree with that. No, Reckoning isn't an agreement. We have to work it out in our minds. 
like we would work a complex calculation or a geometric, an intricate geometric proof with detailed precision, lengthy analysis. Then we are to appropriate the results of that consideration to our lives by, th- by setting two things to our account through that reckoning. One, we are dead to sin. And two, we are alive to God and Jesus Christ. That's the result, the product of our reckoning. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, let me ask you, have you done this? Have you reckoned yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ? Have you worked this out for yourselves? Have you carefully considered the wondrous mystery of your union with Christ and the spiritual benefits flowing therefrom? Have you taken the time to ponder the fact that you have participated in the events of the cross, that you have died and that you have been resurrected with Christ now? I want to urge you to take up this task and devote your week to serious reflection on this matter. Whatever ways you choose to do that. Talk about it at your dinner tables. Read Romans 6 again. Make it a topic of your prayer this week for one another. This is preventative theology. What do I mean by this? Let me use an illustration from uh, a couple of areas. Auto mechanics. Every fluid and moving component of an automobile has a service life that will, in time, come to an end without proper maintenance. We all know that. Everyone understands the need to regularly maintain the mechanical condition of their cars and trucks as to prevent expensive and sometimes irrevocable damage. The old adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, does not apply very well to auto mechanics. Preventative maintenance is necessary. If our camshafts are driven by a timing belt, we had better replace the belt at the recommended interval before it breaks so as to not risk a punctured piston head or bent valves, which would render the engine useless and is very costly to repair, especially in Volkswagen Jettas. If we fail to change the engine oil, we risk sludge buildup and deteriorated lubricity that translates to premature engine wear and higher heat that can eventually lead to engine component failure. Just the other day, uh, Carson showed me the valve train of a Ford truck he was working on at, at Tipton that was improperly serviced, hadn't had the oil changed in many, many miles. The neglect was clear, and he wanted to show me, like, look at this. This is what happens when you don't change your oil. And for a true mechanic like Carson, it was a sad sight. Carson lamented the neglect of that engine. I could feel his pain. And then, of course, when things do break on our cars, either from neglect or from normal wear and tear, we do get them repaired, and we do bring them back to a state of proper function and safety. So we intuitively understand the distinction between preventative maintenance and corrective repair. But we have a hard time investing our money in the prevention side of things. It's not broke now. Why do I need to spend any money fixing it when it's not broke, right? Well, the same distinction can be made in the area of health and many others, but I'll mention health, right, comes to mind. If I eat double Whoppers and Chicken McNuggets every day and prefer sodas over water, eventually my cardiovascular system will deteriorate to the point of requiring life-saving medication or invasive surgery. But if I maintain a healthy diet and lifestyle and my natural health can be maintained for much longer and my health, my healthy body will be better able to fight illness and disease. That is generally true. There's always exceptions to that. 
But that's generally true. But it's also true spiritually. Paul's injunction for us to reckon ourselves dead to sin is preventative theology. It's, it's preventative maintenance for our souls. Like that of an automobile or, or, or preventative health. But like our hesitation to get those bald tires replaced before they fail, we put off the preventative and we instead wait for the blowout so we can justify the expense. But that is much more risky and dangerous. So it is with our spiritual lives. So much of our time is spent on corrective theology. What to do when we do sin or how to deal with it how to deal with a fallout of that sin. And of course, this is necessary. This is good and right, and it has to happen. We still sin, and we have to deal with it. But I submit to you that the constant reckoning of our identification with Christ and all that that means is even better because it has a preventative, maturative function in us and in the body of Christ. It is a proactive faith, not reactive it curbs our sin and it mitigates us. It mitigates the need for corrective intervention. It establishes us in the proper relationship to the proper object and it colors the rest of our lives through its lens. According to Paul, this reckoning to our account is something we are to constantly do as the present tense of the verb in this uh, uh, sentence indicates. Keep on reckoning yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. If I don't really understand and reckon myself dead to sin, then I certainly will never break free from its slavery. Yes, indeed, our justification has been won. And it has been won by God through Jesus Christ, not by our works. But if this is not appropriated through our reckoning of it, Its benefit remains only theoretical and not actual. The Bible is clear about this. This is a similar instruction to what Paul says to the Philippians regarding their own sanctification. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The verb work out here. Katergazomai. It means to bring about a result by doing something. To bring about a result by doing something. The danger we face, dear Christian, in our walk with God is proneness to passivity. We preach rightly and without hesitation that God does it all with regard to our salvation. It begins and ends with Him. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Amen and amen. But here, we fail and can fail to understand the nature of secondary causation. And that it is through our reckoning and working this out for ourselves that this work of salvation in us is accomplished. God's doing it, but He's doing it in us. We are not puppets. True Christian faith is an active faith, not passive. It is precisely because works do not save us that we work all the more to tease out the meaning of God's gospel of grace. And so, Paul now goes on 
to tell us in our text that we must act. We must act. Theory must produce action. In James's formula, faith without works is dead. Verse 12 commands us, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Exactly what does this mean? Paul is very precise and clear. And his answer falls into two corresponding halves. The first is negative. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That is, do not keep on making the parts of your body, your tongue, your hands, your feet, available as tools of unrighteousness. Be on constant guard. Be vigilant against doing this. And while you are doing this, take positive actions. This is the active part. But, he says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. This is your posture toward God. You must act like this is true of you. You have been united with Christ in His death and resurrection, and so you present yourselves to God as someone of whom this is true. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The tense here demands a decisive once-for-all act. We make a decision to give ourselves over to His dominion in our lives. God, here here I am, alive from the dead with You. I have died with You and I have been resurrected with You. Praise Your name, O Christ Jesus. Now here is my whole body, my arms, my hands, my feet, my voice, my ears. Take them all, that they might be instruments of righteousness and not of sin. This is the prayer of one who reckons themselves united to Christ in his death and resurrection. So the logic of our passage is compelling in its three key words. To know, to reckon, to offer or present. Do we know something of our amazing solidarity with Christ? I hope that thought has been rekindled in you and sparked in you today. That we actually participated in his death and resurrection. We do not completely understand it, but we at least understand that the, the Scriptures claim this for us. Then, have we consciously set it to our account? Have we reckoned this to our account? That we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus? And finally, have we yielded our entire lives to Him with decisive commitment and action? Those are the questions before us today. If so, then we know the answer to those who argue that grace encourages sin. As verse 14 tells us, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Grace encourages righteousness. May it be so with us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing the glory of Patri. Puritan scholar and veteran pastor Joel Beakey writes that the doctrine of our union with Christ is so profound, it is almost too good to be true. It's so profound, it's almost too good to be true. Yet, it is true, and we must believe it on the authority of God's certain revelation and learn to live in its reality. And so, dear Christian, I'm going to ask you, Yet once again, have you reckoned, worked out, calculated, carefully considered, thoroughly pondered that you are united to Christ in his death and resurrection?
that you are really dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ? Perhaps you have done the no part, refusing to yield yourself to the service of sin. Maybe you've checked that box. That is good, but it is not good enough. There must be the yes part. The part that says, take and use my entire life, Lord. I am wholly yours because I have reckoned myself dead to sin and alive to you. I will act like this is true. The fruit of our justification and our union with Christ is full-on joyful obedience expressed through an active faith lived ever before the face of God. So we pray, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as Thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it Thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is Thine own, it shall be Thy royal throne. And take my love, my Lord, I pour out at Thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for Thee. Amen. Father, as we leave Your sanctuary today, may we reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. May we understand our profound identification with Your Son, our Lord. And may this change us. May we know the hope to which You have called us, experience the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, and trust your incomparably great power for us who believe to live lives of grace and faithfulness for your glory and for the good of the world. May your kingdom come through us this week. Amen. Amen. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.